where the secretary and I have a very profound difference. In the last debate, and I believe in her book, very good book, by the way, in her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia, when the United States bombed that country, overthrew Prince Sihanouk, created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Well, a sad occasion. We're pouring one out for a legend. Victor J. Kemper, the prolific Hollywood cinematographer, died at the age of 96. I mean, along with Vilmos Zygmunt and Laszlo Kovacs, this cameraman, I think, really helped define the look of 1970s American film. With such films as Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, Elaine May's Mikey and Nicky, John Cassavetti's Husbands, and Peter Yates's The Friends of Eddie Coyle. As his career went on, he developed a flair for comedy. He was the cameraman on National Lampoon's Vacation, the Steve Martin star-making film The Jerk, Tim Burton's directorial debut Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tommy Boy with Chris Farley and David Spade, as well as Jingle All the Way, a favorite of yours, I'm sure, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I also want to note that those are just some of the marquee titles. There are many cult classics on his resume as well. Carol Reese's great film The Gambler, Richard Attenborough's Magic, Slapshot, who can forget that, with Paul Newman, Beethoven, the uh, classic film with Charles Grodin and the Dog, as well as Elia Kazan's final film, The Last Tycoon. Really, that's just scratching the surface. I mean, he also shot The Candidate with Robert Redford, Mr. Mom with Michael Keaton, uh, Xanadu, a bit of a cult classic with Olivia Newton-John there. So, I mean, what can you say? Everything on the high and low spectrum, classics to cult classics, Victor J. Kemper, rest in peace. Well, Will, uh, a film I've been talking to you a lot lately that uh, we may do an episode on in the near future is uh, the Ridley Scott Napoleon film. I'm planning to write about it, so I don't want to say too much here, but uh, I got something you'll like, which is the uh, write-up on on the film in uh, the National Review by none other than uh, Armand White. Okay, before you tell me this, I have an opinion on Armand White that I want to share on Mike. Go for it. I don't think he ever really gets a rise out of anyone anymore. Mm -hmm. He very rarely even gets a reaction. Back when I first became conscious of Armand White, he was the guy who would like, oh, he'd do the the one negative review that spoiled Toy Story 3's (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes (laughs) score. Right, right. And now I kind of feel like his right has become very poor these uh-huh. days, like just as prose. And I don't see the liberals rising to his bait. No. Um, and you read his stuff on National Review and it's like, no conservatives are reading this because yeah. to even decipher this, you have to have a long familiarity with him. Well, I'm glad that you said that because the reason I'm bringing up his review of Napoleon is that his reason for disliking it is so utterly bizarre. And I don't know if you can help me at all decode what the hell he's doing in this review. 
I would be extremely grateful. So he says, uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon is another of his lavishly produced movie epics with a TV commercial mindset. As usual, Scott sells visually sumptuous cynicism, this time about Napoleon Bonaparte leveraging his control of post-revolution France starting in 1793 to attempt conquering the world. Uh, he says the film displays a tawdry sense of Western history, which, by the way, uh, agree. But then he says that it's unfortunately in sync with the times. It's a commercial selling despotism. Now, um, there's a lot like Joe Brandon's despotism, right? Right. right. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I just, I'm not going to read the whole review. There's just one other thing that it, this tickled me so much. So he says, as Joaquin Phoenix portrays him, Napoleon is idiosyncratic, pervy, brutish, joker in a bicorn hat. And this is the really important part. Phoenix's caricature reflects today's popular disdain for colonial Europe, embodying our broken sense of heroism, now the result of living through deceitful leadership. And then the paragraph ends, and he's, he's talking about a particular scene in the movie. Uh, it's a metaphor for dictatorial obsession. Now, he seems to be simultaneously saying that the movie is a celebration of despotism, but also that it reflects a popular disdain for colonialist Europe. And I'm, I'm having trouble reconciling those ideas because it, what he says is the popular disdain for colonialist Europe embodying our broken sense of heroism. So it seems like he's taking offense to the fact that the film has a jaundiced view of Bonaparte, a cynical view of Bonaparte, but then he's also saying that it's a metaphor for dictatorial obsession. This is why I really don't care for Armand White's national review phase. He was much more interesting before he was writing for explicitly partisan media because you see him, uh, like he's he's always been a conservative, obviously, but now you see just like talking points infecting his prose. Well, yeah, later in the review, he says, Scott's Napoleon represents a culture of visual frivolity, the depreciation of, of aesthetics that is a consequence of TV's overload and digital technology's unreality, too much fantastic video game style imagining. Now, I actually think that's kind of a weird criticism to level at the movie because I don't think there is that much like CGI or like in many cases it looks pretty good. It's a lot of on-location stuff. Like it's it's very weird to charge the movie with that. So as you said, it feels like he's kind of reaching into an arsenal of talking points here. The visual frivolity of our decadent culture or, you know, under, under liberalism or whatever. Yeah, I mean, for, for a long time he's been throwing anything against the wall and kind of hoping it sticks but that that is interesting that little touch in there about today's popular disdain for colonialist europe uh, our broken sense of heroism that this movie is somehow infecting the monomyth you know which is one of the big bugaboos among conservatives these days and maybe, maybe this is unfair to him, but it's like, does he know what he's, do, what he means? Or is he just mashing together? Like, he, he makes a, a number of, like, pejorative references to, you know, Hollywood keyboard warriors or whatever. I think that's one of his go-to bogeymen. Is he not just a keyboard warrior, like, smashing the buttons at this point? It's too bad. It makes me sad. He didn't always used to be this bad. He gives contrarians a bad name. I like the idea of a contrarian critic. We, we live in a diseased hell world, but this isn't it. <laughs> He's political. She's politically incorrect. And just when things are heating up on the road to the White House, her past catches up to his future. Republicans, Democrats, even communists, she's figured out a way to lose them all in one fell swoop. Love and politics mix in the HBO original movie, Running Mates, a romantic comedy starring Diane Keaton and Ed Harris. It's really a love story. The film is, is really about these two complete opposites who, you know, re-meet after many years. 
Well, our movie on this episode is Running Mates, an HBO film from 1992. This falls into a sort of category of movies that we sometimes do that are, you know, politics movies, capital P politics movies, movies about the lives and loves, the travails, the joys, the sorrows of people on the campaign trail or peripherally associated with it. Movies like Speechless, movies like Primary Colors, uh, whatever that Hugh Jackman one we did was where, which, yeah, the front runner, which, you know, allowed us to, uh, you know, gaze upon the vista of a future in which a different Atari Democrat uh, won the Democratic uh, nomination and did so earlier than Bill Clinton did in 1988, but was uh, savaged by the press, which deprived us of the, the Gary Hart presidency that could have been. Now, Luke brought this movie to my attention. I had never heard of this film before. To be clear, I just want to get it on record. I'd never heard of it either, okay? How did you hear about this? Where did you find out about this? Man, you know, I, I can't remember if, if you're a listener and you recommended this one and I'm forgetting that uh, I apologize I don't remember I may have simply found it you, you know where I might have found it is uh, you know how on IMDB if you look at an entry it's like you might also like you know X Y and Z well, we've watched so many movies like this. I mean, we watched The Contender like in the last month or two. I think it might I, have come I hate, up. I hate this genre now. I was telling you a few weeks ago on this podcast that I just at home, my girlfriend and a friend of hers were watching Dave, you right. know, that comedy from the 90s where Kevin Klein plays the, the president's like doppelganger who has to be the president. And right. I, I sat there and watched it and I was like, I feel like I'm at work right now. Yeah. This, the movie can be good. It can be bad. Doesn't, doesn't even... <laughs> Matt, usually it's bad. Fortunately, this movie is great. <laughs> but just seeing any movie that has like a leading man of the 80s or 90s in the White House. What was or the Michael Washington, Keaton one? Speechless was with Diane, Gina Davis. It wasn't Diane Keaton. <laughs> no, no, that was Gina Davis. And, the, and in that one, they were James Carville and Mary Madeline. Right. And then there was the American president, which was sort of the like progenitor to the West Wing. Aaron Sorkin wrote that one. There's so many movies like this. Uh, Primary Colors, you mentioned already. Movies like this are part of, I think, two uh, distinct but related zeitgeists in the culture of the early 1990s. One, and I've used these reference points before on the podcast, I'm going to do so again because they're so useful, is a shift in the kind of uh, you know macro narrative that sustained politics movies in the tradition of all the president's men, where it's all about you know how uh, we need to hold uh, power accountable. You know, It's often not about the politicians at all, or the politicians are often the villains, or they represent forces that we're not supposed to trust. And the protagonists are, you know, the heroic journalists who are, uh, you know, uncovering corruption, etc. That really shifts in the, you know, late 1980s and early 90s. And then you get something like Primary Colors, which was made into a movie, which, you know, we talked about God knows how many years ago on this podcast, but was based on a book written by, I'm forgetting the name, but a, a you know, a campaign reporter, which is a, you know, very thinly veiled sort of fictionalized account of a guy who's just Bill Clinton, who I believe was played by John Travolta. Uh, that is the, correct. In, in the movie. And so the macro narrative shifts in these kind of movies where instead of being at least somewhat cynical about politics and, and institutions and, you know, the power brokers that inhabit them, Instead, they become the protagonists and, you know, the sort of standard uh, or stock narrative is all about how, uh, you know, we're too hard on these people. Uh, they're actually, the, you know, they're public servants and the press is ruining so many lives and it's ruining so many, you know, it's, it's foreclosing the brilliant political future we could have if Gary Hart became president or something. That's one of the things that these movies partake in. And there's a second one, which, you know, certainly puts a smile on my face. I will just say, I'll come back to that in a sec, but I will just say this type of movie, uh, Will and I are wired differently because 
this movie, Running Mates, it's not a good movie. None of these movies I just but, mentioned but are good. But for the first like 25 minutes, you were laughing and cackling oh my like, God. like you were in 1980 watching Richard Pryor live on the Sunset the, Strip. This is the way, I mean, I am like, I have been permanently irony poisoned by this podcast because I see this stuff. I've seen a million movies like this. All it and takes. I'm loving it. And I don't actually like it, but I don't know anymore. I can't tell. I can no longer tell what's, what's good and bad when it's a movie like this. I mean, look, I know it's bad, but it's like I have as much enjoyment, even as I hate it, as I would in a movie that I actually liked. If there's a scene in a movie, it's a movie from the early 90s. And uh, let's say uh, Senator Michael Douglas or whatever (laughs) is is in a room and he's surrounded by campaign staff. I'm making up a movie in my head here. And a campaign staffer played by Sam Waterston comes in and he's holding a sheet of paper and he says, uh, Senator, the polls say they disapprove of authenticity. They want candidates who are phony. That's that's what the median voter is saying now. And Michael Douglas will say, we can't compromise on the authenticity factor. I have to say what I believe. Yeah. Damn what the voters think. Yeah, and, and, then, and then Luke is uh, like a pig in shit. I'm, he's so happy. I got a giant rictus grin on my face. And then what's great is in that in that movie you just imagined the movie will establish that michael douglas absolutely has to say what's on his mind that's very important and then you'll just never hear what he has on his mind because the speech at the end the big speech that this whole courtroom's out of order speech will be all about how we need to let people speak their minds and then no speaking of the minds will actually occur and these movies are always like usually they're love stories it's like yeah michael keaton and uh gina davis or uh, kevin klein and sigourney weaver or who who in this case, Ed Harris and Diane Keaton. That's what it's about. But there has to be a scene, like, politics have to be established. So there has to be a scene where the the, <laughs> right, wo- the right. woman... This is where this is what I was coming to. The yeah. woman will always be talking to somebody and the, they'll say, I don't know, uh, would you want to get with a politician? I mean, politicians are pretty slimy. And then the woman will say, I don't know, have you looked at uh, his track record on irrigation? It's uh, really <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. it's quite yeah. progressive, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it'll cut to the next thing. And irrigation is a, a placeholder for Listen, politics are happening and he's he's fine at it. It's a prop. There's no there's no substance. It's not part of the narrative at all. It's part of like the mise-en-scene. Yeah, exactly. It is part of the mise-en-scene. And it has to be there, but that's it. But so you're you're getting at the the thing I wanted to mention next, which is another trope of these movies. And like, goddamn it, so many of these 90s movies have this. And that's this kind of absolute wide-eyed fascination, this awe at the fact that politics is an artifice and this excitement at that reality. So, you know, the classic movie, which, you know, again, one of our stock reference points on this show, and for good reason, is the early 90s documentary, The War Room, which, among other things, helped invent the respective mythoses of uh, James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, and more broadly, the archetype of, you know, the savvy backroom campaign operatives who, you know, pull all the strings and, and pull the string. But, you know, these guys who, uh, yeah, in the the war room, you know, they're going to each press room after the debate and they're saying that uh, Bush looked low energy or something like that. And we're supposed to watch that and be like, wow, these guys are so good, isn't it? Isn't it so cool that they're doing this? And so this movie is absolutely full of that stuff, and I loved every single bit of it. So I, I did. I didn't like it. I didn't really enjoy watching it in any way. <laughs> no, I didn't either. But and also, fact, I, I did. I'm in very fact, confused. I would even say that on the spectrum of this, it's, it's, of it's this really kind bad. of movie, yeah, yeah. this genre movie, this 
This is oh, not man. on the good end it's of the so, spectrum. It sucks so much. I don't well, like any of these movies, but I really well, don't like we'll this We'll get one. to it in a second. I mean, this is a movie that, you know, within a few weeks of us recording this, I know this is going to fade into the background. It's going to get mixed in with the Michael Keaton, Gina Davis one, and like 10 other movies we've talked about on this show that are all exactly like this. But no, there's an early scene where, you know, the, this movie is, you know, announcing to you that, okay, folks, like, you think this is like a rinky-dink rom-com, okay? This is a serious movie. This is a this is an adult movie. This is politics in it. And so uh, Ed Harris and his advisors are, you know, they're they're huddled in a diner or something and they're having a politics conversation and it's all stuff like, uh, okay, but we can't forget about the issues. And then another guy will say, oh, what about next week's political projections? And another guy will say, oh, but those projections, will they even be germane a month from now? And somebody else will say, uh, you know, Senator, you have incredible voter appeal. Uh, and then someone else will say, okay, but we need to focus on the real priorities for Christ's sake. And yeah, like this is the film announcing to us that it's a politics movie and uh, the politics conversation is utterly devoid of any political content. So that is the species of movie this is. Let's get into it, Will. How do, how do things open? Uh, what is Running Mates about? Before it slips out of our head and we can't remember like all the others. Right. Uh, so <laughs> I also just want to say from my, from my perspective... That was the moment that Luke is just like cackling like he's wearing a sweater made entirely out of feathers. And <laughs> and I'm sitting here just stone faced like, oh, OK, I get it. It's 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 one of these. Will, will, of will, these will turn to me and he's like, he's like, can you explain to me what's funny? And you weren't saying that in like a confrontational way. You're like, I genuinely want to know what you see in this movie that is amusing you and that you think will be interesting to talk about. <laughs> like, I'm I got nothing here. <laughs> Sorry. And then that's when I do sort of my Zizek thing. And I'm like, like, ah, but you see the absence. Is, is, and then, is where and then, there is substance. And then you know what yeah. I think? I think, oh, right, one of these again. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. <laughs> to be clear, I'm on your side here, ultimately. But I also want to say that three quarters of the way into this movie, I did I did really find my way into it. I really did. Yes. Something happened to this movie that really hooked me into it and oh, kind yeah. of got my pistons firing, too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited to talk about <laughs> Hell that. Hell yeah. But the plot... <laughs> It's a simple plot, okay? Tonally, it's kind of all over the place. It's a dramedy with more of an emphasis on drama. Uh A little bit of romantic comedy elements here. But Senator Hugh Hathaway, played by Ed Harris, and I will not be using the character names henceforth. I will just call them by the actors' names. I'm not interested in being like, Aggie Snow, the Diane Keaton character. No, no, no. Ed Harris, he's a senator. He's running for president. He has a problem. He's a single man. Honestly, what do you think the odds are that Diane Keaton or Ed Harris actually really remembers this movie? It's a good question. I mean, like, do you remember every podcast you've ever recorded? No. <laughs> anyway, he's running for president or he's or he's preparing to. He's and, a senator from we never find out because it doesn't matter. And he's he's a Democrat. You know, yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. solid Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't really get a great sense we, of what his policies are. Oh, well, actually, there is one policy <laughs> in 1984 when the Republicans were only serving the rich. He says he got a public health care bill passed. The, 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 now, the, I want to hear the, about this. The, the Public Health Act of 1984 was his baby, folks. And he did that at a time. That's okay. right. He had to push to get that through. And I assume it was Mitt Romney's health care plan in Massachusetts, basically. Yeah, it was probably it was probably like not actually a health care plan. It was like a tax credit that somehow only 10,000 people qualified for. And even well, it was got. it was publicly available to apply for. Therefore. <laughs> the tagline was we're going to end health care as we know it. And then it was just making health care illegal. But no, there is one other scene in which there's like a, an allusion to what type of politician he is. And uh, yeah, there's this kind of bizarre character. What is he? Chappie? 
Chapman, Chapster. He's Diane Keaton's brother. Uh, he's uh, played a, by Ed Begley. Played Jr. by Ed, Ed Begley Jr. Uh, he had a one-hit wonder some years ago, and then he seems to have had like a romance that fell apart. He's never got over it. He only seems to listen to one song, which is the Joe Cocker version of "You Are So Beautiful to Me." which is... He's comedy relief, basically. He's a wacky, mentally ill man who lives with Diane Keaton. He's angry with her that, you know, you're you're getting hooked up with his right-wing hamburger jock. I don't know what a hamburger jock is. That's what he says. And then she replies, he's not right-wing. He's a Democrat. So that's kind of like, he's an Atari Democrat. He's Gary Hart. He's Bill Clinton. And don't forget, this movie came out in 1992. So this is a movie that is in some fashion, I don't know what month of 92 it came out, but this is clearly responding in a big way to the various scandals that surrounded Bill Clinton. It came out in October 1992. So literally... To be be clear. So literally like weeks before Bill Clinton was elected president. And it's saying, folks, don't be so hard on these guys. They have a tough time. So more on the Diane Keaton character. She is a renowned and famous and award-winning children's book author. She won the highest award that a children's book author can receive. She is uh, so well-known that in fact, Ed Harris and his campaign team know her. Now, she and Ed Harris... They were high school classmates, but they apparently were not really friends. Certainly not lovers back in the day. He was captain of the football team. The movie sort of seems to imply, well, of course she had a thing for him, but, you know, of course she has to pretend she doesn't like him. The scene at the diner right at the beginning, there's a bunch more funny stuff. There's some Tracy and Hepburn style banter between the two of them. Some sparks flying. Yeah, he asks her, what do you think of politics? And she's like, oh, you know, I, I hate it. And then he says, uh, what, do, what do you think the role of government is and she says something like well John Adams says it's to ensure the felicity of all or something like that and he's like whoa you've read John Adams and she's like yes of course I've read John Adams and I don't know this tickled me first of all just because the John Adams thing she's quoting is kind of like it could it could mean literally anything it's just an extension of the movie announcing itself as a politics movie but there's no politics to it but I also love that John Adams is like the founding father that it reaches for for some reason I'm sure there's lots of people who study John Adams but he, he was certainly never part of any syllabus I had studying political theory, whereas, you know, uh, other founding fathers were. I don't know, it's just kind of a little out of place. But then again, I'm not an American, so many, maybe lots of people read John Adams. Well, you know, Itchy hit Scratchy's uh, ribcage <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the, with a, okay, uh, like a xylophone. Right, and right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, what you need to know is that she's a famous children's book author, but before that, her past is a little sketchy. She's okay. shown up <laughs> Gatsby-like on the scene as a children's book author, but nevertheless, the two of them hit it off and they have a very brief courtship which if the movie has a problem and it has many but if it has one particular problem it's that the courtship is not convincing and this is not I think the fault of Diane Keaton and Ed Harris who are fine actors who are game with whatever is provided uh, there are sort of two courtship scenes the second of which you know when they consummate their relationship um, Ed Harris is I think a little a little aggressive a little pushy he invites himself over to her place you know he sort of I- after, after he's invited her for lunch, like his opening salvo is like, do you want to come have lunch with me? And then he's late. And by the time he gets there, she's had like two glasses of wine. She's got food in front of her. And then he immediately turns around and starts talking to some fellow senator in the restaurant or in the Senate canteen or wherever, they, wherever the hell they are about, you know, recess appointments or something. And then uh, she gets up and leaves, you know, good for her. And then he shows up at her- Like fucking at, Sean Connery Bond, yeah, you know, yeah. with the full swagger. Yeah. And then- kind of invited himself in and, and then they're just having this like they have this evening where in the span of five minutes she goes from like oh you just want to oh, sleep no, with me you, you can just... <laughs> you can never take me yeah no, yeah, yeah can i tell you the truth 
Yes. I hate politics. I mean, <laughs> I mean the same. I mean, sure, some of your views. I mean, they're pretty good, but they're so cautious and compromised. And okay, then give me a harder edge. I'm gonna see you as someone who'd like to do something about the issues you care about. Well, yes, of course, I would really, I would like to. I mean, I'd like to do something about the environment, for instance. The environment, great. Turn to chapter 24. You'll see we don't disagree on everything. The movie is incredibly sexist because it wants very badly to establish Diane Keaton as this very smart and charming and witty person who's famous in her own right. And then it frequently fails to honor its own premise. Like the movie doesn't really make sense. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But like where it ends up going is it ends up being all about, you know, can they really have a relationship when, you know, she doesn't like the limelight and she doesn't like the compromises you have to make as a public person. The thing is, the film has established that she's an award winning children's author. A U.S. senator and his staff, his retinue, you know, know who she is. So it doesn't really make sense. Like, she is a public person. And every time the film, you know, gives her a scene where she's kind of defiant and she's saying, well, I'm not down with something. I'm not going to compromise on that. I'm not going to lie about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And, you know, she storms out. This happens a number of times. The film then always, like, she just tearfully comes back right away. And I guess there's a couple instances where Ed Harris storms out as well. And then the same thing happens. But the movie's pretty unfair to Diane. And Keaton. And yeah, because of the way that the courtship is paced, like when the courtship started, I thought, okay, this is going to be like the stakes of the movie is the courtship. And then, you know, the movie is going to be about, you know, do they get together at the end? And this second scene that, you know, constitutes the like 10 minutes they spend together before they get together, she's kind of rejecting him. And then, <laughs> then his next move is being like, I think you're brilliant. Do you want to be on my staff as a speechwriter? And so then you think, okay, well, okay, first of all, wildly inappropriate, but uh, notwithstanding that, that's being like, okay, you don't want to sleep with me, but would you like a paid staff position where you're my subordinate? But so then you think, okay, so she's going to be on his staff and then he's like still going to be courting her or something. And then they're still going to have this kind of will they or won't they thing. Uh, But no, they get together and she joins his staff. So there's absolutely uh, no tension at all. And the, the way this is paced, this all happens within like the first like 20 minutes of the movie, but also like they've only had like three scenes together and they've like barely had any dialogue. And then after no time has passed, they're just like in love and, and he He's saying stuff to her like, I want you to marry me. I've never contemplated not being with you. And it's like, okay, uh, movie, please slow down. These characters have known each other for five minutes on screen, but like literally for like two days in, in the like world of the film. I'm pretty sure in the diner scene, one of the advisors says something about how they're four months out from Iowa. And the final scene of the movie is the Iowa caucuses. So none of this is really believable. It's all pretty silly. I don't think this really fits in anywhere, but there's some really funny dialogue in this movie. One of the things that he says, says to her very early on when he's turning on the charm. He says, you have a beautiful profile. It's very patrician. And I have no idea what you, kind you of- have a beautiful profile. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's very yeah, patrician. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. That's the other thing. His dialogue and also her dialogue. I mean, how would you describe her character in this movie? Well, just the way she dresses, it's like she's wearing these tops with shoulder pads and then like skirts and then sneakers. And it's kind of like Annie Hall grew up to be an Atari Democrat. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, for the first part of the movie, her lines are stuff like I'm not good in the love department I have this tendency to abstract devotion and like I'm not good in the love department I have, yeah, I have a tendency a, to abstract devotion yeah it's like things that you can hear in Woody Allen's voice and it's a little weird anyway we then very quickly go to uh, you know she's on the speech writing team and then we get another couple scenes that are all like hey audience did you know this is a smart movie that's gonna you know show you how politics actually like it's kind of marketing and that's actually kind of exciting so her and the rest of his advisors they're all sitting around a table and you know 
one guy, the kind of James Carville of the bunch, is saying uh, his base is going to be, you know, uh, it's really in middle America and women, but we also want him to have broad appeal. Uh, and then they want to talk about, he, you know, he's going to re- represent strong traditional values, but also new ideas. Now, she interjects here because she's uh, getting a little frustrated with how unsubstantive this conversation is becoming. And she says, well, what about his ideas on veteran retraining, which are among his most forward thinking? This is exactly what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, this yeah. is that moment. Yeah, this, this is, is the, the moment in all of yeah. these movies the, the where they just... moment. Yeah, the, it's, it's this <laughs> veteran retraining, he yeah, said. Yeah. And, and, then, and then later it's the public health That's right. Bill. And then, and then all, these, all these male advisors are like, listen, lady, you know, we're seasoned professionals, okay? We're, we're not going out on a limb by... We're, we're not going to talk about veteran retraining, a controversial issue like that. Then they have this conversation about American exceptionalism because one of the advisors says, well, you know, he's gonna, he wants to be... Basically, they say he wants to make America great again. He needs to make America great again. And she says, uh, don't you think Americans have a purient interest in their own greatness? Don't you think Americans have a, a purient interest in their own greatness? <laughs> so, you know, she she basically, you know, starts talking about, like, don't you think American exceptionalism gets a little, you know, don't people get tired of it or something? And they're, well, not in middle America, ma'am, or, or something. No resolution to the scene. And the point of it is not what's being discussed. The point is that the discussion is happening at all. Beating it at horse here, but this type of scene was so in vogue in the early 90s. The only thing I would say, I guess, I mean, not even in its defense, but just because it's awful and, and so stupid. But to put it in context, I guess like a fair number of people did find like this kind of thing novel in the 90s. You know, politics is, is artifice and actually isn't that interesting. And and this is what the, net, the scene that follows, by the way, is doing as well, because we then cut to a scene of Ed Harris in his Senate office and he's talking about campaign talent. He's going back and forth with some other advisor and they're saying stuff like, oh, I don't know. We can't get rid of Delaney. Delaney has been with us from the very beginning. He's helped us win every election. This is exactly the same thing. Early 90s movies just reveling in the idea that, you know, it's not just the politicians. Campaign staff are very important. They're these hired guns. They're these renegades that have a genius that can't be pinned down. If people have seen The West Wing, probably the best avatar for this is Bruno Gianelli, and I'm forgetting the name of the character, but the woman who I think works with uh, Bruno Gianelli, played by Janine Garofalo. And, you know, Bruno Gianelli, who's, you know, a well-acted character, I'm forgetting the actor's name, but the whole point of that character, who I think you're supposed to respect on some level, is like, yeah, look, he's a sleaze. He's a hired gun. He'll work for anyone. He ends up working for Alan Alda, who's a freaking Republican, although he's one of the good ones. And actually, in the original ending to that show, uh, Alan Alda was going to become the president, not the Jimmy Smith's character, the Democrat, Matthew Santos. But Bruno Gianelli, you know, you're supposed to just be reveling the whole time in his, like, yeah, his unbridled genius. And it's supposed to be really cool that he'll work for anybody. And, you know, that that scene where he's first introduced and Bartlett's staff were all talking about him, you know, before Iowa or whatever. And Allison Janney's character is saying, oh, no, Mr. President, it's too early for Bruno Gianelli, you know, and the implication is this guy's lightning in a bottle, but we can't bring him in too soon. That's probably the best fictional avatar I can think of for this type of character. And yeah, films from the 90s just are just full of this stuff. All right. You can see how this movie has really lit up Luke's imagination. Uh, And I'm excited to get to the part where I start to light up, but yeah. we still yeah. we still have a few more plots. We've, 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 we're nearly at episode 500 here, and I think what we're learning is that Will Sloan actually doesn't like the Michael and Us podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like how many movies have Luke. we done recently where you're you're just like, oh man, I can't I can't do another Luke, one of these. Luke, <laughs> how dare you question my loyalty to this podcast? Because I think what we found is on some politics movies we have slightly different tastes. You love these ones where it's famous actors from the 90s pretending to be political. Yeah, yeah. I like algorithmically generated 
good documentaries on Tubi where a fake computer voice spouts facts about January 6th. Yeah, you're right. We are not the same. Uh, but anyway, I'm excited. I'm excited to tell you so much about this movie, but a few more plot details. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Diane Keaton is, yeah, like hired to be like, what, a speechwriter or whatever. You basically don't see her be a speechwriter. I feel like you never see him give a speech that she's written. There's some kind of proto Sorkin-esque scenes oh, yeah. where she and the campaign staff trade barbs, trade repartee. And then eventually she gets a promotion. He falls in love with her. They marry, but, but, but she realizes that she's entering the limelight. She asks, like, do I have to compromise who I am? Do I have to compromise my principles, my integrity, my, my very personhood? And he says, not with me, baby. Uh, I will just I say- I never ask you to do that. <laughs> I'll just say again, just on the level of craft, I think the main reason this movie above all doesn't work is that the courtship is not convincing. There's not enough time spent on it. There's no. not enough time establishing what are these characters like about each other. It feels like a sham so that he can get a wife in time for the primary. That's what it feels like. But at the same time, there's a couple things the film just expects of you. And I don't know, maybe audiences in the in the early 90s re- received it this way. But the film, it wants you to root for both of them. And it really wants you to root for Ed Harris. Like nothing he does is really supposed to be like inappropriate or like it's coming from a bad place at all. So she agrees. They get married or in, or engaged. They get engaged. They get yeah. engaged at least. Uh, when he announces his candidacy, that's when the trouble starts. They're on stage together at the podium. The <laughs> press are taking photos. They're demanding that they contort themselves into, you know, hold your hands up. Now give her oh, a kiss. Can you kiss again? We didn't get the shot. Every flash bulb is an attack and she's overwhelmed. She flees the scene he follows her into the ladies restroom where they hug and he comforts her and says we're gonna get through this together. yeah but not not before he's like why didn't you tell me that this wouldn't work before like pull yourself together woman damn it be a man <laughs> and be a woman yeah he says be a man i don't want to have to be careful about what i say or worry about my hair or whether i have the right dress on or try to pass muster in front of a team of expert lice inspectors look i hate parties i hate social functions i don't want to live my life in a national terrarium is that what you're afraid of Yes, I'm afraid of the press. I'm afraid of being under a microscope. I'm afraid that I'll have to say things that I don't believe or stand there with a smile on my face while you do. There is some uh, battle the sexist stuff going on. Frankly, these characters spend more time fighting than they do being tender. There's a whole argument scene where he's demanding that she go with him to some like state dinner. Oh yeah, and she's like, I'm not going to be some plain vestial brain plumage for you. Just another example of the the type of dialogue that appears frequently in this movie. Now, we haven't even got to the biggest (laughs) problem yet though. You, You were talking about the 1992 election parallels and she is a sort of like Hillary Clinton type in, in the sense that one of the popular narratives about Hillary Clinton at that time was here she is this this great mind she's a policy wonk you know yeah. a real competent political force yeah. who had to subjugate herself in some way she had to become a wife for the campaign trail that's the popular narrative that was in the air that this movie is hooking into and we're seeing the Diane Keaton character struggle with that but then It gets even harder because like Hillary Clinton, she had a radical past. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she was hanging out with Saul Alinsky, folks. Before we get to the scene that I know you're excited to talk about, can we just talk about like after the press scrum where they're trying to get them to do the kiss again, there's another scene that's supposed to, I mean, the the film is just like, the whole second act of the film is just this back and forth of like her being like, no, I won't compromise. And then being like, yes, I will. And then they have to do something else that's inauthentic. And she's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then him being like, I won't 
won't ask you to do it again. And then they're both just like, yeah, actually, uh, now on to the next degrading, inauthentic thing. And there's this like really weird, I don't know what else to call it, except like an ethnic outreach montage where there's a bunch of scenes of Ed Harris addressing uh, various members of various, various communities. parts of the Democratic Party and, coalition. And th- this, this is so racist, honestly. Okay, so It'll, yeah, it, it's a montage where first we see him giving a speech at a black church. Uh-huh. Then he's giving a speech surrounded by Israeli flags and... Uh, he says something about, you know, the, the nation of Israel or something. And then it cuts to like a bunch of guys who look like they're playing in a mariachi band. And like, there's literally like a soundtrack to this sequence where at this part, it's like, to say nothing of the soundtrack in the Israel scene. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. goodness. Talk about tropes. <laughs> but this montage is important because it is the designated, and I'm saying this in quotes, special interest scene. Yes. And yes. Uh, I'm reminded of a movie that we watched many years ago in this podcast called The Last Party with Robert Downey Jr. It's a documentary that Downey himself hosts. Yeah, yeah. And he's talking to all sorts of politics people. It ends with him going to the RNC and the DNC at each, you know, an outside where there's people protesting various things. And we see him interview many people of various, again, quote unquote, special interest groups, you know, pro-lifers, pro-choicers, black radicals. He's like, oh, look, it's the angry feminists. It's like all this kind of stuff. And yeah, the implication is all of this, again, is just mise-en-scene. It's sort of like, look at all these exotic, eccentric causes that we're seeing in the politics That world. are not in the mainstream, but are nevertheless part of the great tapestry that is the United States. Because the United States has a mainstream and then it has fringes. I, I guess, I guess, you know, I need to see the movie again, but my memory of it is a, is a little different than that, or I would at least make a friendly amendment to that interpretation of it, because the way I read it was more like, maybe these things are fringe, maybe they're part of the mainstream, whatever, but they're, they're part of politics, and the whole movie is told from Robert Downey Jr.'s point of view, which is a post-political one. So it's sort of just like politics itself is just this like amusing curiosity that's part of the tapestry of American life. We don't expect anything from it. We don't really care what the different causes are. We're not making qualitative judgments about which ones are bad or good or who's right or wrong because none of that matters. It's all just like regalia and it's here for our entertainment and fascination as, you know, enlightened postmoderns who are, you know, beyond politics and who are post-political. So anyway, Will, I'm sorry. I've delayed you for far too long. Will is right. There was a part, I don't know what, two thirds of the way through the movie. And finally, Will's eyes lit up. I was so happy to see it. Yeah, I was finally on board because there's a scene where Ed Harris and Diane Keaton are on a red carpet going into some fancy political function. And there's a a man who looks like an aged hippie among the press scrum. And he says, oh, it's that uh, children's book author. I remember when she was uh, something more than a children's book author. (laughs) Yeah, she has some skeletons in her closet. And then you're thinking, oh, oh, man, I I think I hear this and I think, was she in a porno? I thought it was going to be, oh, she was a radical. She's protesting Vietnam or something, which is bad. And it turns out the answer was somewhere between (laughs) what both of us thought. The answer was the funniest thing it could possibly be. (laughs) So there's a scene when Ed Harris is told, sir, uh, meet us at this location. (laughs) We got an emergency. There is an emergency involving the potential first lady and they file into a movie theater and there is a scene almost exactly like the most famous scene in hardcore where George C. Scott is watching the movie and he's like oh no that's my daughter turn it off turn it off but Ed Harris is sitting there surrounded by his aides the projector starts running it's clearly like an eight millimeter or kind of a fuzzy image it says the year 1969 and we are confronted with an experimental film starring the young Diane Keaton which is if you've ever seen an experimental film from that time 
it looks almost exactly like one of them. <laughs> it's there are a bunch of like college age kids who are like there's flags everywhere, and, and there and there's a guy in a Nixon mask, and there's a scene where the guy in the Nixon mask is having sex with Diane Keaton, who has you know a flag like painted on her breasts, and they're in a bed where like the blanket is you know paint. It's, it's, it's like an American. Or it's a lot of and thing is I don't think they even do they even burn the flag. They don't burn it? the flag. There's some like implication. I don't think it's even shown that at one point she tramples on the flag. But what's so funny about this? Yeah, this experimental avant-garde 1960s satire. And it's like, there's not really any satire here. It's just a kind of like, although I guess this is what and you th- and this is about where it. This is where the movie is at its most accurate. It's like, I'm looking at this and it's like, yeah, Robert Downey Sr. could have made this back in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those movies. So anyway, the, the film stops running. Ed Harris is like, turn it off. And then he confronts like- the, Well, the in guy- rocks, the, the door swings open and in comes the aged hippie. You says, hey, uh, you know, it should be a shame if this fell into the hands of... (laughs) Which, by the way, this is like two-thirds of the way through the movie, and there's no evidence that there's a primary going on at all. We never see him give a single speech. We don't know who he's running against. We don't even know where he's at in the polls. Well, anyway, this scene where Ed Harris is talking to this old hippie, which is is as if he was negotiating with a terrorist. (laughs) This former member of the counterculture is basically like Bin Laden. (laughs) Yeah. And and he's like, yeah, it would be a shame if uh, these images of uh, your lovely girlfriend uh, with an American flag found their way into the press <laughs> and then eventually the press does find out and this leads to the climactic and final scene of the film they're at a press conference they're on stage Ed Harris so it's the night of the Iowa caucuses he's just one Ed Harris and Diane Keaton are on the stage and the press are confronting him with this news of an experimental film involving a trampling of the American flag and, and nudity my goodness well, and importantly right she's not on stage with him because they've basically had a tearful conversation beforehand where they've realized, you know, who knows if the film will get out or not. But if it does, you know, Diane Keaton, he initially asked her to lie about it. Just say it's not you. And she's like, well, I can't do that. And that, and they realize this isn't going to work with us. You know, he's on track to be president and there's just going to be more stuff like this. And so this sets up this final, you know, epic speech where, yeah, so the press can... Di- Diane Keaton is on stage. She's about to deny that it's her. But Ed Harris realizes that, no, we will never make her be something that she's not. We will never disavow... Well, we will disavow. Uh, he, sa- he says, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, members of the press, do any of you know anything about experimental film? You, sir, do you know George Kuchar? You, sir, do you know Stan Brackage? Do you know that that film screened at Anthology Film Archives with Jonas Mikas himself present, preceded by Pull My Daisy featuring Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac? <laughs> sir, do you know anything about the radical humor that helped end the war in Vietnam? Sir. Uh, no, that... Uh, that doesn't actually happen. Instead, Ed Harris positions vulgar political protest as an unpleasant but necessary <laughs> yeah. part of a democracy. It's so great. He doesn't even defend it. He calls it, he's like, it was a little 60s thing. He's, and he's Bunch like, of teenagers who couldn't even vote yet. Yeah, he's like, what, and what, ladies, ladies and gentlemen of the press, have you no decency? What is the issue here? You know, she, she made a film with her friends, which is her First Amendment right. Sir, have you read <laughs> Visionary Film by P. Adam Sidney? because there are 20 pages dissecting this film's political satire in there, yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. And then and then he, like, this reporter who's, like, asking the question, he just owns him. He owns him so hard. He's like, why would you even ask this question apart from wanting to increase your readership? You know, you people are making me question whether this is even worth it because this is the woman I want to marry and I'm not going to allow you to turn her into public property. So with her permission, I'm going to make just one statement. And after that... 
There are going to be no more questions and no more answers on this subject. Period. Yes, Miss Snow was in a film. It was a little art film, a 60s kind of thing. They were, uh, they were thumbing their noses at the American flag, exercising their First Amendment rights as creative Americans. And yes, there was some nudity, a bit of sexual behavior, and it was all done in the spirit of a political satire, and it was done more than 20 years ago when Ms. Snow was not even old enough to vote. Is this film going to be made available to the press? This is not going to go away. And the press has the right to know everything about this film. The press has the right to know about me and my qualifications to hold office. And the press has a right, along with the American people, to judge me. Aggie wanted to tell the truth about this. I asked her not to because I knew what kind of damage it could possibly do to my campaign. And Well, I'm not proud of having done that, but I, I'm not going to stand here and let you and let you do this senator you're not naive surely something like this makes your fiance unacceptable as a potential first lady unacceptable i've never met anyone in my entire life with more integrity than aggie snow and what is at issue here huh what is at issue here other than you're wanting to increase Have your you readership. Have you considered that in the 1980s, when Reagan was president and New York City was bankrupt, the reason the cinema of transgression flourished in the Lower East Side <laughs> is because its citizens had been hung out to dry. Sir, these films are an expression of anger and pain. And we must see the root cause of that pain instead of trying to ban the films. Yes, experimental film is the heart of a heartless world, sir. <laughs> This scene is so funny because, yeah, like Ed Harris, Ed Harris is not actually like defending the movie except in this meta way where he's like, are you against Americans? Are you against free their, speech? Yeah, their First Amendment right. But then he's also like distancing himself from the film. And so is she. Well, well this is the horizon of political freedom in this movie where it's like you do have freedom of speech. But let's all agree we don't like the 60s and they were bad. Better disavow it. <laughs> yeah. OK, yeah, if yeah. you want to get anywhere. And, you know, I'm reminded, as always, by that scene in Forrest Gump when yes. uh, Gump, after serving in Vietnam, is in Washington following Jenny, and he goes to what is like radical headquarters, where yeah. you've got <laughs> you've got, got Black Panthers. Students for Democratic Society, they're all hanging out together. Everyone's got their portrait of Marx on the wall or whatever, <laughs> and Gump is looking at this and like, okay, well, this is not good. But so then uh, the movie ends by they walk off stage, he's owned this reporter, and then his advisors are like huddling and they're like, well, that's it, you know? So much to us making it to the White House. And then the other advisor looks out on the crowd, looks at their response as they slowly start clapping and the cheers grow louder and he says, take a look, you might want to think again or something like that. And the implication is actually this moment of authenticity, this I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This ladies and gentlemen of the press, this whole courtroom is out of order. The implication is people are going to love this and uh, he's definitely going to be president. And then the film just ends. The credits literally roll. It's very abrupt. It's like, I was it's like when you're going up a staircase and you think there's another step. That's right. You know? Know. I would have liked to have seen him get the presidency. Like yeah, something. Yeah. Well, do you, do you remember in Primary Colors, I think the main story ends before the presidential election because in that one, the operative is like, oh, I can't serve with them, but then like also I still want him to be president. And then there's just, it cuts to the future and there's like a montage of John Travolta shaking people's hands and it's like he's become president. And the implication is sort of like, well, you know, I couldn't work for him out of a sense of honor, but you know, I, I'm sure as hell glad that he's here or something. 
thing. Would have been nice to have something like that. I don't know. Just for a sense of closure, which like, I don't even know what I'm saying. Who cares about closure? Closure is when we've turned the mics off and never think about this movie again. But just a denouement would be nice. Yeah, you know, something. It's the, it's the, this is a hack movie, so let's have a, an ending that works. Yeah, there, there are so many issues with pacing in this movie. And I think Will is right to say that in the panoply of movies like this, it's definitely lesser. There's a lot of just really basic problems with the structure and the execution of certain things. But so the credits were rolling and it was kind of both of us were kind of like, all right, let's get to business. And then I thought, you know what, the credits are rolling over like the scene as you know, the Iowa caucus ballroom or whatever is uh, is emptying out. And I was kind of like, well, let, let's see what happens. And I'm glad we left it going for another 30 seconds. Because as the room empties out, the camera slowly pans to the dais and the American flag that's behind it. And that is actually a perfect little touch because it's saying, folks, this is the only country in the world where a quarter century ago, you could make an incoherent satirical film that you have to distance yourself from. <laughs> uh, because of prudishness and conservatism and the stifling of literally the most toothless and limp descent imaginable. But at least you have a right to... But at least we're not going to throw you in jail. <laughs> <laughs>